Officials held a missile evacuation drill on Yonaguni, an island located about 110 kilometers from Taiwan on November 30th. Around 20 residents rushed For many people living in the Japanese islands south of Taiwan or in locations closer to the East China Seas, security drills have become a regular occurrence. To the extent where in March 2023, as a safety drill, entire islands were evacuated to the Japanese mainland. Japan has always had a tense relationship with China, but now due to both their geographic proximity and their close alliance with Western countries, this tension is taking on new dimensions. Right now, the government is talking about how to make those uh, residents in those uh, southwestern islands evacuate to the mainland uh, Japan. And uh, that's a very uh, new trend uh, we are facing. For the smaller scale uh, evacuation activities, we have some experiences. Mm. But you know, the population size, with this, uh, we have no experiences. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith and my guest today, Professor Chisako Masao of Kyushu University, is an expert in China-Japan relations. She has watched the growing hostility between the two countries as the relationship deteriorates. Over the last decade or so, you know, uh, Japan had been bothered by uh, China's uh, new actions surrounding the Senkaku Islands. Mm. This type of challenge is something we've always seen uh, in the last decade or so. However, last year, you know, uh, China's new action uh, regarding our EEZ uh, sent a very strong message to the Japanese side. Maybe it wasn't really intended. It is reported at that time it was Xi Jinping himself who decided to uh, shot uh, those missiles into Japan's claiming EEZ. To convey a message to Japan, uh, you should not intervene uh, the Taiwanese affairs, which China regards to be a part of the country. Uh, however, you know, in Japan, it was interpreted in a very different way. I think uh, there is a growing consensus among uh, Japanese public mm. that China is challenging the peace and stability of this region, unfortunately. So beyond that, a very poor public perception of China. Is it that China is untrustworthy? Is it that China is dangerous? Is it all of these things? Unfortunately, I think that's yes. I think over the last 30 to 40 years, Japan interacted with the Chinese citizens more and more. So on the individual basis, uh, I think uh, many Japanese people do have good friends uh, from China. So individual perception is quite different. However, uh, when it comes to state-to-state -state mm. relationship, yeah. there is a you know, changing mood uh, from China. So I think Xi Jinping government is basically, um, how should I say, somehow China is quite concerned with their uh, national security and regime security as well. So they've taken many measures to uh, strengthen their domestic control and their actions regarding their national security as well. Yeah, and yeah. many of their measures send a very complicated message to the Japanese side. 
Well, we've seen China uh, sending so many aircrafts over the Taiwan Strait, uh, also the island itself. And, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, uh, they've registered this uh, National Security Act and uh, against Uyghurs. The regime is taking very disappointing measures. So we've seen all of those actions taken by the communist regime. Before this happened, uh, many Japanese uh, believed that we have ways to coexist with the you know, Chinese without any problems, as long as you know, uh, we uh, pay respect to the existing international order. But those new actions taken by uh, Xi Jinping regime is understood in a very uh, negative ways in mm. Japan. You mentioned the national security strategy. So that was uh, December 2022 when that came out. It phrased China's assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific as the greatest strategic challenge ever to securing the peace and stability of Japan. All of those actions that you just outlined comes into, I think, why China was framed in that language. But the fact that Japan is being assertive in how it's framing and viewing China, it's not remaining entirely neutral in the language that it's using. If that's part of the strategy and intentional... Well, it's a very interesting question uh, because um, I think what's happening in uh, this part of the world is basically the security dilemma. Mm. So China takes those new actions uh, in order to protect their sovereignty and uh, their claiming rights. However, uh, in many cases, they take those actions in a very, very uh, excessive ways mm. because uh, they believe their you know, interests should be <laughs> fully protected, sometimes even by sending out their own policemen to other countries, right? And uh, those actions seen from the from the Japanese side are understood in a very different way. We tend to regard China as a new type of threat that utilizes many different measures to extend their interest to new domains. So we tend to regard China as basically re-establishing the international order uh, in the interest mm. uh, of their own. And we want to protect ourselves from their new measures. So it's a security dilemma that is actually taking place in this part of the world, I believe. But you know, uh, because they both believe that they have full rights to do it, uh, it's very um, difficult to co make a compromise between those uh, two different ideas. So can you tell me then about Japan's international alliances? Because I, I take it that's a very important factor, an important element in Japan's strategy and their defenses and how they interact and manage themselves in the region. I think uh, the measures taken by Abe administration and uh, current Kishida administrations are also very different. During Abe administration, we did have very uh, tense disagreement over the Senkaku Islands. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, there was this new uh, you know, idea coming up that uh, Japan's territory is challenged by a new uh, security, well, actually threat. We didn't even think it was challenged, but a threat, security threat. At the same time, Abe also understood that it was uh, so important for Japan to maintain some sort of uh, economic uh, cooperative relationship with China yeah, and yeah. this, uh, you know, uh, this dot thing, you know, the island issue uh, shall not influence our bilateral relations uh, in a total way. Mm. So I think uh, Abe utilized a very complicated 
strategy. Uh, you know, he tried to combine security measures to align with first the United States, but also with Australia and uh, in some way uh, European and uh, India, you know, by forming the squad too, and uh, try to make China understand, even if you try to pursue your uh, national interests uh, in your own unique way, uh, it's not going to happen because uh, we are forming some sort of loose uh, cooperation uh, with the international society. Mm, and mm. at the same time, he kept uh, sending, you know, a benign message to Xi Jinping administration to talk more with the Japanese side. However, I think during COVID-19, uh, this type of balance was not maintained, partially because of China's uh, wolf-warrior diplomacy. Chinese behaviors uh, seem to be more aggressive ever than before. That situation made Japan much easier to collaborate with the um, Western world. Sure. Uh, because yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, European perception over China also changed dramatically. Mm. And uh, American uh, perception on China have started to change uh, some years earlier. Japan was able to uh, use this uh, new uh, international er- environment to pursue their national interests. Yes, and I think yeah. Kishida is more uh, inclined toward aligning with the Western world. And I think uh, I understand that going too much uh, because uh, we also need to strengthen our relationship with the developing uh, countries or emerging countries, or sometimes we call them a global south recently. Mm. And uh, somehow Kishida hasn't really highlighted this aspect uh, comparing to Abe. Overall, uh, it is understandable why Japan is uh, pursuing more collaboration uh, with Western countries. That's with the large powers, but as you say, it's at the cost of forming a, a solid relationship with uh, more regional neighbours, I suppose? Is that the impression that you get? So countries like the Philippines and, uh, and South Korea? It's a very interesting question. Uh, when the 2022 National Security Strategy came out from the Japanese government, they didn't highlight their traditional relationship with Asian uh, Didn't even partners. highlight it. When it announced uh, their first uh, national security strategy in 2013, uh, that was one of the focus. Mm. When Abe came back to office in late uh, 2012, and uh, I think uh, he made the first foreign trip in 2013, uh, probably in January, but uh, then he traveled to Vietnam and some other uh, Southeast Asian countries. Mm. He valued Japan's traditional relationship with those, you know, Southeast uh, Asian countries Mm. a lot. Mm. However, this time last year, in that national uh, security strategy, they didn't even highlight the importance of uh, Indo-Pacific, which was a signature of Abe's international concept. So so that's why I've been a little bit critical on Kishida's foreign policy, because um, our collaboration with Mm. Asian countries is so important. And in order to form a new um, international order uh, yeah, that we yeah. are contesting at this moment. Um, it is so important for us to listen to those voices as well because uh, it's not something we can establish. You know, it should be established based on our 
consensus, right? <laughs> mm, mm. So has Kashida been visible in the region? Has he been visiting other countries in the area? He did visit it, you know, especially during the international conferences. Mm, mm. But I think his diplomatic emphasis is not there yet. You know, um, at this moment, um, Japan is discussing more about uh, the G7 summit. Yes. Most of our efforts are with the Western countries so mm. far. Okay. So can we talk then about Taiwan, which is very much a topic of concern, I think, mm-hmm. in the region, and uh, when it comes to China's actions and what they are doing. I'm interested in what they see Japan's role as possibly being in this. So what risk does it hold for Japan and regional stability? At this moment, uh, of course, we do not know if the mainline China takes those actions to take over Taiwan. But uh, obviously, it is preparing the capability for it. Mm. It has been showing uh, its muscles by uh, making their aircraft fly over Taiwan all, all the time. So uh, there is a risk, but at this moment, uh, we are not sure if it is going to happen or not. But especially since uh, last year's missile shooting into the Japanese water, uh, which we consider it to be, I think the uh, Japan's perception on this Taiwan issue is changing really a lot. The government is taking a lot of effort. Well, of course, even before that, uh, they were trying to draft this uh, new uh, national security uh, strategy, of course. But, you know, the degree of our perception has changed since last year. Mm. And uh, many Japanese public also consider that uh, with the high possibility, this risk uh, can be materialized in a new coming future. I don't know if it is true or not. Uh, As a scholar on China, um, I have slight disagreement to this type of perception, but the government is working very hard to prepare for this. However, because of our constitutional uh, limit, and also uh, because of our uh, capability. I don't think uh, Japan can really intervene to this affair if that happens uh, militarily. Uh, So what Japan can do is basically the logistic support Mm -hmm. for the American military. Uh, Because uh, since uh, there are more and more people, uh, including politicians in Japan, are concerned about this. And um, I think um, there are more uh, conservative politicians who are arguing that we really have to do something for Taiwan if this happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Is that how you believe that China would assess the situation as well? Or are they uh, looking at Japan and thinking that there might be a more active role there? Uh, I think um, even in China, there are probably different voices. Mm. Um, Generally saying, um, Chinese international uh, experts are power political. uh, So they tend to believe this um, power politics decides everything. Mm. And um, they tend to believe that Japan, because it's a running dog of the United States, it will listen to the U.S. Uh, requests. Mm-hmm. However, I think um, that is not a correct understanding on Japan. We are, by ourselves, uh, very concerned about the situations. And if uh, Taiwan is taken over by the mainland in a very forceful manner, uh, that can actually change our international environment pretty much. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are very afraid 
of that. So that's why uh, there are growing public voices who request the government to, you know, do something to overcome the situation. Mm. And uh, some people are also requesting the government to uh, intervene uh, the situation uh, militarily in some ways uh, by using our counter-attack uh, capability, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. which is going to be acquired uh, by the Japanese SDF mm, mm. in the near future. So recently there were evacuation drills of the Okinawa mm. Prefecture and uh, there was an evacuation of around 100,000 residents from remote islands that are actually quite close to Taiwan. And those people were ultimately relocated to Kyushu. So what did that activity look like on this end of the operation? And and what do you think about needing to be that prepared? Because if Taiwan becomes an area of conflict, then these populations, these islands, which is part of Japan, can directly be threatened as well. That's right. So uh, it's a very interesting question. Right now, the government is talking about how to make those uh, residents in those uh, southwestern islands evacuate to the mainland uh, Japan. And uh, that's a very uh, new trend uh, we are facing. Uh, Of course, this type of evacuation itself has been operated when uh, there is any uh, natural disasters in Japan. So in those cases, usually the SDF and uh, fire fighting team are usually mobilized. And uh, in that sense, um, they have accumulated many good examples already. So for the smaller scale uh, evacuation, activities, we have some experiences. Mm. But, you know, the population size, with this, uh, we have no experiences. At this moment, uh, you know, on the surface, uh, people are talking about how to make those people evacuate to Kyushu. But there is another, uh, you know, concern. How can we make Japanese and foreign residents in Taiwan to evacuate to Japan? So uh, I think um, this drill also uh, reflects our concern for this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're really going to, you know, make those residents evacuate to Japan, we have to think about, you know, how to mobilize uh, civilian vessels. Population of this size cannot be, you know, evacuated to Japan uh, only by the SDF vessels. It's Mm, impossible. mm. So we have to mobilize uh, civilian vessels. And if this is going to happen, uh, it'll be a very unstable situation and can we make those civilian vessels operate in such a situation. So sea control will be another issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not a simple question and we still don't know the answer. We just started to think about But the fact that uh, it is being thought about and prepared and and these drills are going on now, not right now, but you know, Uh, there's something that's being undertaken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You mentioned earlier the Senkaku Islands. With the behaviour, with the disposition that China is showing towards Taiwan and the risks that that provokes, is there the worry that similar things could kick off over the Senkaku Islands and that this is something that would more directly, aggressively threaten Japan? That's a very high possibility if it happens with Taiwan. I mean, uh, according to China's claim, uh, Senkaku Islands are part of Taiwan province Mm. under the PRC. So uh, if Taiwan is to be backed to the mainland, then... uh, Then that's all part of it. Yeah, yeah, it it could be a part of it. Mm. 
of course, uh, things are not that easy. Uh, if uh, China tries to take over uh, Senkaku Islands at that time, then uh, Japanese SDF you intervening yes, this issue. Yes, so yeah. uh, by attacking Senkaku, China can at the same time expand its counterparts. Yes. So it's not an easy decision for China, too. But, you know, when we think about this issue, I think we also need to understand what is actually happening, you know, surrounding China and the Asian water. I think uh, basically there is a gravity change happening uh, because of China's rise. Of course, uh, at this moment, people talk about this Taiwan issue, but because since, uh, since uh, many uh, bigger countries are all paying attention to this uh, issue, maybe the peace in Taiwan can be maintained because if anything happens, then uh, it'll mean a lot. In the end, China may not be able to touch upon this, but that doesn't mean this gravity change can be stopped. You know, China is growing and it wants to control bigger areas surrounding uh, the continent. So I think uh, in the end, this uh, first island chain is pretty much linked to each other. Mm, you know, yeah. uh, when this type of tension is happening, you know, it can break out in South China Sea or in East China Sea anywhere, mm. you know, anywhere on the front line. And um, Japan locates on the line as well. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we can uh, be a part of larger picture in the future in this sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, the phrase when I was Googling China and Japan's <laughs> relationship, the phrase that I kept coming across was uh, hot economics, cold politics. As I understand it, the trade, the economics part of the China-Japan relationship is still hot. So is, is that still a, a, applicable as it was back in the day when it was more of a common thing? Or has it gotten hotter and at the same time colder? <sighs> it's great that you bring up this, uh, you know, saying hot economics and cold politics. I think uh, basically the Chinese experts started to you know, describe uh, the bilateral relations in this way 20 years ago. But looking back... And now, uh, I miss that phrase because uh, at this moment, uh, we are seeing this uh, economic relations between the two countries getting colder and colder. In, I think I was uh, the end of March. China uh, detained the first Japanese businessman after the COVID-19 in the name of spying activities. Mm. This person has worked in China more than 20 years in total, and uh, he has served uh, as a vice president of uh, China-Japan uh, Chamber of Commerce. So he had a very high status among those uh, Japanese businessmen mm. in China, a very well-known person. This kind of person can also be you know, detained by Chinese uh, security agency. And I think uh, after 2015, uh, he was the 17th Japanese individual who was detained by China. But this was the first case after the COVID-19 uh, when uh, China started to reopen its country. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when this critical moment, China is reopening its country and re-inviting foreigners to invest into China, uh, it somehow uh, detained this businessman. Mm -hmm. um, so nowadays, no Japanese want to go back to China. And, uh, you know, we have growing concerns on Chinese government's conduct 
you know, managing the economic relationship with the foreign countries. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and uh, they even, you know, uh, try to have, you know, tighter control over its uh, own domestic economic forces as well. You know, Alibaba uh, was not allowed to, you know, operate as freely as before. And, and they, now uh, it has to listen to the government more. Mm. And um, there are so many IT companies that have to listen to the central government of Ch uh, China. You know, they are strictly controlled under the state authority. Economic situations are changing. It, they can no longer be considered as the links between uh, the foreign counterparts. Cold politics, cold economics. Yes, it's turning into that way. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Just as a, a final question, what is it like for you as an expert on China? You're quite outspoken and exceptional in your field and respected. Do you use caution in the way that you approach your research and your work? We do have a lot of caution. <laughs> well, just before the COVID-19, uh, one of our fellow colleagues who was from uh, Hokkaido University was also detained by mm. the Chinese security agency. We know there is always that type of risk. Mm. Yeah, but I still have the wish to keep collaboration with my uh, Chinese colleagues to discuss these academic issues. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I think uh, there is a strong consensus with the Chinese counterparts as well, because uh, without this type of frank discussions, we do not understand each other. And I think on um, the Japanese side, do not fully understand China's concerns as well. And that's something we have to learn each other. I fully understand that. But you know, mm. while I try to state my side of concerns, uh, I do have some risks because uh, then I can be understood uh, by the Chinese authority. Oh, this person is so aggressive and uh, harming China's interests yeah, yeah. by expressing my own views. So at this moment, I don't plan to go back to China anymore yeah, yeah. in the next 10 years or so, I don't think um, less and less Japanese experts are wishing to go back to the mainland, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a similar situation in Australia and, and many other countries. Yeah, very yeah. sad. Mm. We need to interact to each other, though. Yeah. So we do have uh, uh, some plans to invite the Chinese counterparts, uh, but not vice versa. <laughs> that is Professor Chisako Masao an expert in Japan-China relations from Kyushu University, and you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. This podcast was recorded at Kyushu University in Fukuoka, Japan, and was produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>